This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you are in here, open your Bible to John chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there is one in the pew rack in front of you. It's black and hardback. If you don't have a Bible that you like reading at home, take that one home and start reading it every day. Uh, Lord willing, we are going to spend the majority of our Sundays this year marveling at the glory of God through reading this gospel according to John. And here is kind of how I've laid out how you might consider starting your year. Whether you've been a daily Bible reader before now or not, I'm encouraging us all to prepare and to kind of set the rhythm in this new year of reading our Bibles daily. And here's what you can do. We're going to be in this gospel quite a bit this year. And so you can get up in the morning, read one chapter of this gospel each day. And here is what I, I, I would encourage you to do, just, just kind of for starters. Either say out loud with somebody else who's there in your family, who you live with, if you have a roommate, a friend, text somebody, or write it down in a journal. One thing, just one, that what you've just read teaches you about either the greatness or the goodness of God. So read one chapter of John, text somebody, say it out loud to somebody, write it down in a journal. One thing that you're taught about the glory, the greatness, or the goodness of God. Forming one concrete statement about the goodness of God, his greatness, his glory, prior to doing anything else in your day will be a life-changing habit. If you started last week, because I threw that out last week, you're either six or seven chapters in, but here's the great news. There are still enough days in January that if you began today or if you began tomorrow morning, you can still do the whole gospel in January. So you are not behind. You can do this by the end of the month. You can read this whole gospel, just reading one chapter, probably take you less than five minutes per day. So we have a longer section in front of us this morning. We're going to be in John 1, starting at verse 35. We're going to go till verse 51. And here's what I plan to do. I'm just going to work under one statement. I'll tell you what it is. If Jesus is the Son of God, we must follow him with the entirety of our being. If Jesus is God or the Son in the flesh, you could say the Messiah, you could say the Christ, those words will be in this passage as well. If he is him then the only right course of action for our lives is to follow after him with all that we are. That's the statement that, I've worked, that I'm working under. And what, God, what John, the writer of this gospel, is going to show us is that he is. And therefore, when we see Jesus, we have to follow him. You have to follow Jesus if you see him. And what we're meant to find here is that when we come to know the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that's also not something that we've come to on our own. 
That's the second part of this. If Jesus is God the Son, you've got to follow him. If you're following after him, if you've come to know him, that's not something that you've come to know on your own. It's because he has first shown himself to you. So the goodness of God is seen right here. If you're looking for your thing today in chapter one, it could be this. The goodness of God is that if you have seen Jesus, if you know him, if he's saved you, if he's of comfort to you, if he's strength to you, if he's your hope, if your peace is in him, the goodness of God is that's not something that you found yourself. It's something that he showed you of himself first. He's gracious to give that to you. And if you don't think he could ever be that to you, if you think God can never be that to me, I'm too far away from him, here's his greatness, nobody's ever too far away from him. He can find and he can show himself to anybody. That's how great he is. There is nobody who can run farther than God can chase. So in these verses, there are four men who look at Jesus. Five if you want to count John the Baptist, who we're going to read about too. If you asked any of them on the days that we're going to read about, how they first became interested in Jesus, I think they would start and say, well, I saw him, or in in a, a case, my brother told me. But for every one of them, if you asked later, but when you're looking back now, If you could talk to them in heaven now, when you're looking back on it, was it really you saw him or did he see you first? I think all of them would say, you know what, now I realize it was him who pursued me. It was him who called me. It was him who drew me out. And it's because God is the one who initiates the gospel. It's necessary, get, get, get this, it's necessary that we choose Jesus, but it's only possible to choose him if he's first chosen us. Later in this gospel, Jesus will say, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. He'll just say this bluntly, this is John fifteen twelve. you did not cho- choose me, but I chose you. In another of his writings, John will say we can only know how to love because God first loved us. So even the good things we're capable of were first in the mind of God. He initiates the gospel. We love him because he first loved us. If we're in him, it's because he put us in him. If we feel like We've chosen to follow Jesus. It's because he first chose to make himself known to us. Now let's read these verses. And I want to look at eight things. I know, we've only got time for the eight, folks. We can only do eight this morning. Eight things that John means to show us about Jesus. How he's the glorious son of God. And when he calls us to see him, the only right thing to do is to wholeheartedly follow him. All right, let's look at John 1, starting in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, first thing, 
There's John, the writer of the gospel, and then there's John, who's known as John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. The next day when John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Number one of eight things that John wants to show us about the glorious Son of God and what it looks like to follow him is Jesus is the goal of our discipleship. Number one, Jesus is the goal of our discipleship. So when it says the next day, this is actually day three in a sequence that John has been laying out to tell us who Jesus is and why he's come. So if you look back in your Bible, day one starts in verse 19, where representatives from the leading religious order come to speak to the man, John the Baptist, and ask who he is. Now, John is a little cryptic when he answers, and the point in being cryptic is that it doesn't matter who he is. What matters is who Jesus is. So then the next day, which is day two in the sequence, in verse 29, he sees Jesus, and see if this sounds familiar. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, the day after that, day three, where we pick it up, John the writer, or sorry, John the Baptist, John the Baptist begins a transition. Prior to this, John the Baptist has a faithful ministry. He's done what God has called him to do. His work is to prepare the way for the Messiah. So his job is to get the attention of the people, build momentum, tell them something big was on the verge of happening, but now it's about to happen. So John realizes it's, it's time for him to start getting out of the way. And when John says, behold, the Lamb of God to his disciples, he's telling them, that's not just who you should follow. That's who we should all follow. It's not just these two disciples, like maybe just you two go with this guy. He's saying, this is who everybody follows now. And he says it so his disciples will pick up the hint. He's basically saying, follow him, go. Jesus is who we're all following. Now, John the Baptist was, in a small part of the world, among a fairly small group of people, famous. John's ministry was working. People were coming. But John is now telling his followers to go and to follow Jesus. This can be harder than it sounds. Even if you're a Christian... I think you're going to say, if you're a Christian, I think you're going to say, well, of course, I'm following Jesus. But I would ask, are you doing that first? Is he who you're going to first? Is he who you're listening to the most? Listen, I'm not against Bible teachers. I am one. I'm not against your favorite author. I don't think I'm against your favorite author. Tell me who it is. I'll tell you if I'm against them. I'm not against social media. I'm not against radio preaching or whatever, whatever it is you listen to. I want you to listen to good Bible teaching. I want you to listen to my Bible teaching. 
but I only want you to listen to me point you toward Jesus. So my prayer every time I come up here is less of me, more of Jesus. That's what I say almost every week kind of silently as I just kind of ascend these couple of steps up here. Less of me, more of Jesus. The two disciples now that John is referring to aren't going to follow Jesus full-time yet. That's coming. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that they, that they will. But this is the start of the transition. And what John the Baptist knows, what they're getting a sense for, is that if Jesus is who he says he is, and John is saying he is, then we have to follow him. He's the goal of our discipleship. It looks simple, but read again how this came to be. Jesus was walking by. So read verse 29. Almost the exact same thing happened the day before. We just said that. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Here's the first time we see this. Remember, I think if you ask these men, did you choose him or did he choose you first? Their initial response might be to say, well, I chose. And then go, you know what? He was always there. He was there first. (coughs) Jesus is just walking by. Is he, the same thing is happening two days in a row. Is that a coincidence or does Jesus mean to be there? Has Jesus presented himself now to them twice? Has Jesus come to where they are? They're there and Jesus is walking by. Is he presenting himself to them now twice? I think that's what John the writer is drawing us into. It makes it seem like we've, we've looked out and seen Jesus, but actually it was Jesus to where we've come to and he's now presented himself to us so that a faithful brother, a faithful sister, somebody can say, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's right in front of you. And that's our second thing. It's our second thing that John wants us to see that's so important. He actually says it twice. Jesus is the one who takes away our sin. Number two, Jesus is the one who takes away our sin. Now, John has already cried out, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is again in verse 36. No more will it be bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons that were once sacrificed to make atonement for sin. It will now forever be Jesus alone who can take away your sin. So we don't come to Jesus for the first time looking for a good spiritual teacher. He is one, but we come to him because Without him, we're dead in our sin, and without his blood, we're going to stay that way. The first thing we come to Jesus for is to have our sin paid for, removed, and taken away. You need your sin to be forgiven. If you haven't, Jesus is the only way that it's taken away. And this is exactly what John's disciples are looking for. John proclaimed the coming promised one of God. He drew people to repentance, but Jesus is the one who can take away their guilt and sin. He is the sin, great sin remover. 
I, I love this because it shows us the, the kind of teacher that John the Baptist was. His disciples know what they're looking for. When he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they don't go, what does that mean? Can you explain that? To-? No, they say, okay, there he is. We gotta go. There he, we've, been, we've been waiting for him. We've been promising him. That that's it, we have to go. If you haven't had your sin forgiven by Jesus, you have to go. You have to go have it forgiven. It's being offered to you. Take it. Number three, and this is kind of what forms the rest of this. Number three, Jesus teaches us to see. Now, let's read a few more verses, and I'm going to tell you what I mean by Jesus teaches us to see, because it's all over this passage. So pick it up in verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. For our church, this is a drum I keep beating. It's really good to read large sections of the Bible in one setting. You'll you'll see big themes. But sit with these individual passages and look at them. Read them over and over several times. Ask, what is the Holy Spirit doing with the way that this has been written for us? And when you do that, when you sit with a smaller passage of Scripture and you just look at it, and you read it, you begin to notice things. The connections begin to jump out to you. And and here, I think, is the biggest one in this passage. If you've been reading the gospel slowly, you will see something right now. This is the first time Jesus speaks in the gospel of John. And it's maybe even a bigger deal than in the other gospels, because Everything that John has stressed and put a big sign over up until this point says, pay attention to this. He begins his gospel by saying there is a word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then this word has become incarnate. This God has become now flesh. And he is glory, glory as of the only son from the father. That if you've seen this son, if you've seen this word, you've seen God. And he, he means for the language in John 1 to draw you back to Genesis 1. So that you see in that uh, the act of creation that God who hung stars and formed planets did all of that through his word. And then he says, and everything that was made was made through him. And there was nothing that was made that was not made through him. And all that has been made is for his glory. So there is a word. And the word has become flesh. And now the word speaks to us. And what does he say? What are you seeking? This is the question. I don't don't mean just from Jesus. This this is the life question. Like the circumstances just kind of make it sound like Jesus is saying, excuse me, can I help you? But John means for it to be so much more than that. What are you seeking? What are your 
innermost desires. What do you think your life is? What are you going to do with it? And the implication is that whatever they had been seeking up to this point needs to be replaced by him. Really, it's not what are you seeking, but whom are you seeking? And they say to him, well, where are you staying? They're not trying to, you know, see if he needs a place to crash. They're asking to know where they can talk with him more. So where, he's, where, where are you staying means where will you go later? Where will you be alone? Where can we talk to you privately? Where can we, you know, get personal with you? So, so look at the word choices here. Where are you staying? Jesus doesn't say, you know, well, I'm a couple blocks over. His answer is, come and you will see. He doesn't mean, again, I'll show you the room I'm in. He means, follow me and you will see the glory of God. John loves to work on multiple levels. The the writer of this gospel loves to work on multiple levels with, with certain word groupings. In these verses, it's sight. Come and see. They came and saw. Later, it's seeing and finding. These men go out and they get others and they show that they show other people. They bring other people to see Jesus. John loves to do this. Jesus is going to say he saw Nathaniel in, in a few verses. What Jesus is saying, what John is saying through this is, before God gives us sight. We're blind. And our sight then comes in two ways. First, you've got to be shown what you're really looking at. That's what's happening for these disciples. They're being shown something new. You're being shown something different. And the second is, we're given light. The, the prophet Isaiah, we read this a lot in the Advent season at Christmas time. He said this would happen when the Messiah came. People walk in a great darkness and now they have seen a great light. That's what happens when the Messiah comes. It's what happens for you too if you come and see Jesus. If you really want to see him, he will show you who he is. So there's all kinds of plays on this idea of seeing and sight and finding and what other people are being shown. So number three, Jesus teaches us to see. Number four, Jesus is the one to find. If there's something to look at, if there's something to search for, he's the one to find. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found, here's that word again, we were seeking, finding, seeing, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. There was one person Israel had been looking for as long as God rescued them and called them and made them his people. They were looking for the Messiah. It means Christ. It's another word for promised one. The promise goes all the way back to Moses, the greatest leader and liberator of God's people. He promised that there would become one after him, a prophet with a capital P who would be greater than him, 
who would lead his people not just out of slavery in bondage to Egyptians, not just into a land on earth of promise, but out of slavery entirely, this slavery to sin. He would lead them into a land, but not of a physical land with, na- with national borders here on earth, but into a, a heavenly dwelling, into a, a city, a holy place where they would forever dwell with God. And so since Moses, God's people have been looking for this one. And for them, then, the Messiah was everything. And what happened? whatever happened that night when they stayed with Jesus, Andrew was convinced, and so was the other disciple. And I love this too. John does this a lot. He always, he, he, he will, he's, he's there a lot, but he never comes out and just says, it was me. The other disciple was John, the writer of the gospel. That's the implication here is it was Andrew and it was John, and they were together. And then Andrew goes, whatever happens tonight, whatever Jesus told them, it was enough to convince Andrew the wait's over. The Messiah has come. 1,800 years we've been waiting for this. This is him. Peter, you ha- or Simon, you have to come and see. There's a trap we can fall into. It looks like seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus but getting complacent and entitled and wondering if there's something else that God wants to give us. The point I'm making here is Jesus is the one to find. There's nothing greater than Jesus. He's the goal. He's the treasure. Make sure you're following Jesus as that. Make sure he is the hope and not what else might there be for me in this. God will add blessing upon blessing. He will give grace upon grace, but none will ever be greater than Jesus. And so if you're wondering what else is there besides Jesus in the Christian life, you're not seeing it. You've missed it. Jesus is the one to find. Number five, Jesus changes our identity. We can move quickly from here on out. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus, that's Simon, And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, there are reasons that Jesus calls Simon Peter and changes his name. Uh, They're mentioned in the other Gospels. Not, Not much here in John. For now, let's just focus on why Jesus has done this. I I think it's actually quite simple. Jesus is saying, if you're going to come to me as the Messiah, if you're going to follow me, your life will be different from this point forward. You need a new name because I'm giving you a new identity. Our identity was once that we were dead in our sin and trespasses, but God made us alive through Christ Jesus. So when Christ comes to us, we're something different entirely than what we were before. We're new creations. And new creations have to be identified in some new way. The old way won't work because we're something new. And folks, Jesus can and does the same thing for you. Now, you might not change your name, though I've known believers who have, especially in other parts of the world. They do change their name to signify that that Christ has made a change in them. But if you expect to be like you were after you've seen Jesus, if you haven't changed much, if you go, well, I'm pretty much the same as I once was, I just need to to gently tell you, I don't think you've seen Jesus yet. 
If I say, what was your life like before Christ? And you'd say, pretty much like it is now. I, I don't think you've yet seen Jesus. If you had seen them, you would know how radically different everything is. Really, what happens when we come to see Jesus is we become formed to him. Actually, the language that that Paul the Apostle uses in Galatians 4 is he is groaning for Christ to be formed in these believers. Paul says, I groan that Christ might be formed in you. And and that's a good picture. It's a great picture. You actually become less like you. You become more like Jesus. Kind of from the outside, from the inside out, you are formed into Jesus. And that can be sweet and it can be a revealing, it can be a softening. But I hope you know from experience, because if you don't,